What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. So, Josh, what's your type? Of girl? No, of salad dressing. Yeah, of girl. What's your type of girl? You know what? Don't even answer that. Let's say it's black chicks. Okay? That's your thing. For the sake of argument, that's your thing. Okay? Why is that your thing? Is this somehow related to the midlife crisis conversation we had last week? Wait, you mean we were actually recording that? A clip there from the new film Ex Machina starring Oscar Isaac as a reclusive genius who brings unsuspecting coder Donald Gleason to his remote compound in order to test his latest creation, an android named Ava. Guess what? His type is Ava. (laughs) Mine too, funny enough. Our review of Ex Machina Plus, inspired by the film's futuristic domicile, our top five movie houses. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. Film Spotting is brought to you by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price, because everyone deserves a great night's sleep. Get $50 off any mattress purchased by visiting casper.com slash filmspotting and entering the promo code filmspotting. That's C-A-S-P-E-R dot com slash filmspotting and enter the promo code filmspotting. We're also presented by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. They have the exclusive premiere of the most recent Golden Leopard winner at the Locarno Film Festival, Lav Diaz's From What Is Before. Vividly shot in black and white, acclaimed Filipino auteur Diaz's graceful rural drama intertwines multiple storylines across its epic runtime to reflect on the Philippines in a time of turmoil. Lav Diaz told Mubi in an interview that Andre Tarkovsky's autobiographical classic, Mirror was one of his most unforgettable films. Mubi is showing Mirror alongside Diaz's Golden Leopard winner, and that's a Tarkovsky I have yet to see. As a change of pace, Mubi is also showing Gareth Edwards' Hollywood calling card Monsters. This indie alien invasion film shot on a shoestring quickly led the director to helm 2014's Godzilla, as well as an upcoming Star Wars film. I'm certainly excited to see what he'll do with a Star Wars installment after seeing both Monsters and Godzilla. Every day, movies curators introduce a new title and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy and you just have to pay $4.99 a month. You can also use their mobile apps to download films and watch them offline later. Listeners of Film Spotting can try movie free for a month. Just go to movie.com slash film spotting to redeem now. That's mubi.com slash film spotting. listening to film spotting grab your star map hop aboard the film spotting double decker bus as we give you an overpriced tour of the movie's most famous and beloved homes beloved by us anyway this week's top five perhaps the norma desmond decaying mansion memorial movie houses list I was thinking it had to be the Lake House Memorial. Okay, we'll get there. All right. Don't spoil it. That plus Massacre Theater and more later in the show. But first, artificial intelligence has arrived in Ex Machina, sporting the body of Alicia Vikander and the mind of HAL 9000. How long until we get to his estate? We've been flying over his estate for the past two hours. Caleb, I'm just going to throw this out there so it's said, okay? You're freaked out. You freaked out me meeting me, having this conversation in this room at this moment, right? But can we just get past that? The whole employer-employee thing? It's good to meet you, Nathan. It's good to meet you too, Ken. This 
building isn't a house. It's a research facility. And I want to talk to you about what I'm researching. You want to see something cool? Ex Machina is the rare science fiction film that could be reproduced on the stage fairly easily. Written and directed by Alex Garland, who's making his directing debut after serving as screenwriter on Danny Boyle projects like 28 Days Later and Sunshine, Ex Machina is essentially a chamber piece, three actors working together in an enclosed environment. Those actors are Donal Gleason, film spotting favorite Oscar Isaac, Lewin Davis himself, and Alicia Vikander, whom you picked early on, Adam, as a talent to watch for her brief appearance in 2012's Anna Karenina. And I'm just going to say right at the top here, she absolutely vindicates your choice. Thank you. Gleason plays Caleb, a brilliant programmer who is selected by his tech company's CEO, Nathan, played by Isaac, for a top-secret experiment to be conducted at Nathan's isolated, highly secure estate. The experiment to converse with an artificially intelligent female robot named Ava, played by Vikander, and determine if she can convince him that she has consciousness. This sounds awfully talky, and one of the things I want to get into is how, at least for me, the filmmakers managed to make this premise excitingly cinematic. But let's start with these three actors, especially considering the way Ex Machina gradually develops into a psychological thriller, with each character playing mind games with the others and with us. With that in mind, Adam, which performance would you say you appreciated the most among those three? Which character did you empathize with the most? And maybe in a way we can talk about how your answers might be related. Yeah, those are great questions. They're so good, Josh. I wonder if you're delivering your own kind of empathy test right now. I kind of feel like the replicant at the beginning of Blade Runner. Be careful the, how you answer. The Voigt Kampf test, I think they call it, which is basically the Turing test, which is what this movie deals with. That question, which character did I empathize with, I have to add to that, empathize with when. At the beginning of the movie, the middle of the movie, various points along the way, or finally at the end of the movie. And it isn't really until you try to unpack the answer to that question at the end, I think, that you can really decide which performance you appreciate the most. That's ultimately, for me, the real strength of this film, that just as the characters on screen are having their humanity tested, we become, I think, unwitting subjects ourselves in that same test. My sense of connection to each one of these characters was constantly in flux and complex. And it did force me, like I think good sci-fi films usually do, to consider what my connection or lack of connection at those various points says about me as a person, and maybe by extension about all of us as people. You can find as your allegiances maybe shift and sway a little bit, you start to think about the ramifications of that, the consequences of a certain character having success however we define that. To try to answer you, though, Josh, here's what I can say without getting too much into spoilers. And this is hard because we can't really get into how things shift and sway without spoiling a lot with this film. I do think there are three points on the acting spectrum here. We'll see if you agree with me. There's one actor who, without being at all showy, is giving a strong, nuanced performance right from the start and maintains it throughout. Another actor who you don't fully realize has given such a strong, nuanced performance throughout until closer to the end, which is in fact then the strength of the performance, that it doesn't really click for you until later. And then I do think there's another actor who starts out solid and by the end becomes less and less compelling on screen. Hmm. And that's Donald Gleason, who's an actor we both like. We've liked him in other films. He is our gateway to this world, of course, 
We instantly empathize with him because he's this outsider, just like we are being brought into this strange environment and meeting new people. We obviously connect with him right away. But your questions are related. Garland, I think, gets two really fine performances here because of what he does with the characters and how our attachment to them grows or fluctuates. And I think then he gets one just okay performance from Gleason because the script and the direction I'm not sure really fully support him. I think there's just too much required of the actor to pull off in the final act of this film that he doesn't. How do you feel? He's sort of the the stable figure for a while. And so the movie doesn't, the Gleason character, you're right, he, he's meant to be, Caleb is meant to be our surrogate. So the movie doesn't want to really do all that much with him. Mm-hmm. He's got to be sturdy. Yeah. And so it's, it's thankless in a way, but yeah. I think he serves that role well. And in that last third act, I actually think that we see some twists and turns there that give a few more shades to the performance. Among the three, it's probably my least favorite. And those other two, mm-hmm. absolutely, the the phrase you used, shift and sway, I had that going throughout this whole film, trying to figure out, okay, who do I trust here? Is, mm-hmm. is, you know, you naturally trust the Caleb character, and then you start to get a feel for this Nathan guy. Okay, he's he's entertaining. He's fun to be around. For the sure. thing I love about the way Isaac plays him is he is not this egghead at all that we'd expect. The guy essentially owns a combination of Facebook and Google, and we see him in this reclusive estate. What's the first thing we see him doing? He's working out. A, a punching bag. Yeah, he's boxing. He's <laughs> always know? pumping iron. And- and drinking yeah, a lot of beer. Oh, he drinks like a fish. And so you realize like, okay, is this part of an act? I love the phrase he says early on to Caleb is, can't we just talk about this like a couple of guys? Mm-hmm. He doesn't like to get into tech speak. So it's a really fun. He's a bro billionaire. He's, he is absolutely. He's a bro programmer. And I really loved that little twist and how it, it comes into play as well with how he relates to his inventions yes. and his creations. So mm-hmm. it makes... A lot of sense. So Isaac was just fantastic in this. Very different from some of his other performance we've seen. This guy and Lewin Davis are nowhere in the same realm, I think. And so I appreciated that about it. And Vikander, I think, is so crucial to this movie because there are a couple of things going on here. And one is the way she does the android, the robot, this recurring character in films. One of the only things I liked about Prometheus was the way Michael Fassbender gave his own little twist on this character. What I love about hers is that it's very straightforward and committed, and there's almost a lack of range that you could say is a weakness in a performance. But for this part in this film, it is exactly what you need. And what I realized as the movie went on is how much I was reading into her performance of what I wanted to think about her. Of course. And it was yeah. based not only in my own personal feelings and attachments, but in my history of watching AI movies, AI artificial intelligence from Spielberg. A wonderful movie too, but completely different because in that one, we are supposed to care for Haley Joel Osment. And essentially that film is trying to anthropomorphize AI. What this film does, to its credit, is something that other movies, I guess, have done 2001 A Space Odyssey, I would think hell isn't really – there's that dying scene we've talked about on the show in our Sacred Cow review Mm -hmm. that is moving even though he's somewhat of a villain. But it doesn't anthropomorphize hell as much as other films do. And so we want to see that happen. At least I did a little bit with the Ava character. And the movie I think sticks to its guns in that this 
is an artificial intelligence, and this is how it, she, would think, and it allows things to play out in that vein, which I just found absolutely fascinating, chilling, logical, Mm -hmm. merciless. And what I came away from this movie feeling is like, this is how it's going to go down. I mean, I honestly, I honestly thought you're foreseeing the end. It's like, okay, if if artificial intelligence is going to rise and be dominant, never mind the T2 machines Mm -hmm. or whatever, this is this is exactly how I could see it happening. And that was thrilling as a movie watcher, terrifying as a human being. Do you know what the Turing test is? Yeah, I know what the Turing test is. It's when a human interacts with a computer. And if the human doesn't know they're interacting with a computer, the test is passed. And what does the past tell us? That the computer has artificial intelligence. Are you building an AI? I've already built one. And over the next few days, you're going to be the human component in the Turing test. Holy shit. Yeah, that's right, Caleb. You got it. Because if that test is passed, you are dead center of the greatest scientific event in the history of man. If you've created a conscious machine, it's not the history of man. That's the history of gods. You're listening to Film Spotting. We're discussing the new film, Ex Machina, from writer-director Alex Garland. Here is a director known more as a writer, as you said, Josh, for his collaborations with Danny Boyle. I, of course, revere him for his work on Never Let Me Go, the film from Mark Romanek, which does dovetail nicely with this film as that's a movie not about AI, but certainly about what makes us human and those kind of divides. And creates a convincing picture of the near future, I would say. That as well. I'm with you on Vikander, and yes, if it's not clear, I think Oscar Isaac's performance is the one that's brilliant, but you don't really realize the scope of its brilliance until the last 10 or 15 minutes of the film when you start to put some pieces together. Vikander is just really good throughout, and I think that you keyed in on it when you said how you're really focused on what she's saying and how she's saying it, because the movie sets you up for that. Garland makes you hyper aware of those little subtle shifts in demeanor and voice. Any sort of tick or inflection reveals something because we see it from the moment he arrives. The Oscar Isaac character, Nathan, is reading all those tells in Donald Gleason. He can see when something's wrong, when he's lying to him. He cuts right through it the same way that Alicia Vikander does in portraying this AI figure who at one point basically proves herself to be a perfect lie detector because she can read all those things on his face that reveal what he's really thinking or betray what he's really thinking. And what's brilliant about that is we're reading them too. So I am seeing her through Caleb's eyes. And those are the eyes that although he's a programmer and a scientist and and wants to be objective about this, you can tell he wants her to be human. And that's we so badly. Want, we want her to be we human, too. too, because of our training in other movies. Yeah. And and so that's where the filmmaking comes in. And there's a lot of editing in those conversations where we'll cut from her face to his and his reaction. And we attribute that to her performance. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So she suddenly seems to be more human because of how he responds to her, his face. Yeah. Well, I hinted at this earlier, and I don't know how much I want to go down this path. But if we're being open and honest here and looking at these big questions about what this movie sort of provokes... We joked off the top a little bit about how the Gleason character here, his type turns out to be Alicia Vikander, and, well, mine is too. Yes, as a heterosexual male, I find her very attractive. I find her very attractive even as a machine, Josh. 
I do in this film the same way he clearly does. And the movie relies on that because otherwise we're not in cahoots with her or him or them as a couple at all if we don't also see that in her. Not that you have to be attracted to her, but you have to recognize that he can have that attraction to her despite the fact that she is very much a machine. And it made me think then not only how I would be impacted, but how the character in the film, the Gleason character, would have been impacted had, for example, Nathan decided to play a trick on him and one day change how her voice sounded, turn it into a really gruff-sounding man, or put on a different face around that metal skeletal structure. And so it's not Alicia Vikander's face. And maybe her figure changes a little bit. Would he still be attracted to her? What is it that is ultimately drawing him to her? If they are sharing any kind of emotional bond or connection, what you might call love, well, then how deep does that really go? What is love? Is it on the surface? How much on the surface is it? Or is it something beyond that? Is it something more about those little indicators and what you're picking up from someone and what those tell you and how those make you feel? The movie's use of sexuality in general is so subtle and clever. And at first I thought, oh, here's another sexy robot, right? What? How many female robots in film are not quote-unquote sexy? It's generally where they go. So, of course, I'm seeing this and thinking, yeah, this is where we're going to go. And then they address it head-on really right. soon. Nathan does, because that's how he addresses everything. And he's like, why wouldn't sexuality be a part of this? Yeah, and he convinces if this is, you. If this is a test, he absolutely convinces you. And I also really liked, we can't get into this too much, but because sexuality becomes a prominent theme and she is seen, part of her identity is as a sexual being, that lends this really harrowing climax I think some pretty savage feminist undertones that I appreciated that take back a lot of some of these suggestions that maybe made me comfortable at the start and flip them Mm -hmm. on their head. And there's also I'm trying to think of how I can talk in code. There's some really great Stepford Wives ramifications here in where this movie goes and how it uses this idea of a feminine AI. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think that's a whole nother level of intelligence going on in this film. For sure. And I do want to say about Vikander's performance as well, that what gives it so much strength, I think you're right, is in how subtle it is, how it isn't something that is her being overly dramatic at any point. It really isn't about her trying to ever convince anyone of anything. You just feel as if she fully inhabits this and believes every single thing she's saying. All of her indicators are genuine, though I noticed something, Josh, and I didn't really pick up on this until about halfway through, so it's possible I'm wrong here. You tell me if you notice. It's something that would be completely anti-human and yet only, to me, made her more human, and that is I don't think she blinks the entire film. And you think about it and you're like, well, we blink. We're blinking right now as we're talking to each other. People listening are blinking. If this was truly a human character who could go out into the world and probably convince anyone who meets her that she's not a machine, then why isn't she programmed? He would have worked that into to the also do that. Yeah. But you know what? It doesn't come off here like some kind of trick to be robotic or to be an android that she's going to be stilted and stiff and she's not going to blink. What it seems like is more reflective of her hyper focus. That's the word that how just much, came into my right, mind. Focus. How much she is listening yes. to him. And that comes back to this larger question, too, that the movie does get at, that I think all sort of sci-fi movies get at in one way or another about what it is that makes us human, what defines us. And 
you can watch a movie like this and think, well, it's saying something about how our instinct is to survive. But you know what? Lots of creatures, mm-hmm. every creature's mm-hmm. instinct probably wasn't good at science, Josh, but I think every creature's ultimate goal is to stay alive. So that isn't something that distinguishes us really. But what this movie does get at, and I'm sure other films and other works of art have as well, is this notion of craving intimacy. Those moments where, as we get little glimpses of in this movie, where the cameras aren't on them, where they're unobserved and they can be, quote unquote, themselves and they can be, quote unquote, honest with each other. That's where that focus really comes into play. You get this idea that she is connecting with him on a deeper level than maybe anybody he's ever encountered in his life has up to that point. And so, of course, he's going to feel a connection to her because she is listening and more actually involved with what he's saying and with what he's going through moment to moment than anybody else he's ever come across. Hello. Hi. I'm Caleb. Hello, Caleb. Do you have a name? Yes. Ava. I'm pleased to meet you, Ava. I'm pleased to meet you, too. The flip side of that, though, I think, is that she convinces him of her consciousness when she allows him to express empathy towards her. And as you were talking about, does wanting to survive distinguish us from animals? No. Maybe what this movie suggests is if there is a human soul, it's somehow bound up in what we talked about at the start in empathy. Mm -hmm. And if something can express empathy is that distinctive in a particular way? And do we see it in Ava here? And yeah. if we see it, do we buy it in right. Ava here is, a, is another question. So I like that. And she has, you're absolutely right about focus. It's a terrifying concentration. Mm-hmm. We are not used to being looked at that way when we're talking, especially nowadays because of technology when we're also distracted. You know, people are always doing something else. Exactly. And, and even with uh, our closest family members, we can find that it's very hard to spend the time to give a focused conversation mm-hmm. to each other. That's what she does here. And it's a little disconcerting. Uh, he, you know, he finds it very appealing, too, yes. because I think you're dead on. We learn a little bit more about him in the fact that this may be his first real relationship in a sense, but in a way it is disconcerting. And the other thing I liked about the Ava character is that she's not one of these robots who's learning to be human. No. We're not on a journey here of her picking up different skills or understandings. She is who she is, how she was made, and the journey is on the other two, how they interact with her, and then on us. In the audience. Yeah. I want to jump back to what I mentioned at the start, though, is how this movie really is cinematic. And it's tied to the top five we're doing, movie houses. This place they found or built, I'm not sure, to serve as Nathan's home is, well, first of all, I'd love to live there. I mean, it's it's just amazing. That isolated? Oh, I'd be fine with that. Oh, see, I couldn't do that. Really? No. Yeah. Oh, that, that was one of the appealing things. But just the way it's it melds. Nature and technology so seamlessly, which of course is tied exactly in with the theme, but he'll have these glass walls. You literally see the glass walls. You can look out through most of the walls of this house and they intersect directly with like a boulder that's already there in this ravine. So it's this perfect melding and it it stretches over a creek where he's 
punching the bag. Yeah, he has yeah. this deck. It's well, like is it over him this. him kind of dominating nature the way he is also I doing think, I think with his creation? Yes, I think it's exactly what it is. Yeah. It's, it's him melding the two. He's essentially saying here that there, there's no distinction between what God may have made and what I have created. I am melding the two. And, and in his mind, you get the impression improving things. Maybe. Right? So yeah. so it's kind of a, you know, it's not that much of a leap to think about how natural things and technology are already being melded today, whether it's Google Glass, Apple Watch, and then Ava is just an extension of that. So I really thought that was, you know, essential to the movie in terms of using production design. And what did you think of the soundtrack yeah, I loved for this it. film? I loved it so much that I give the movie a lot of credit I've mentioned a few other movies over the years that have had this kind of effect on me where because of the sound design, the fact that it doesn't really rely on music, it's more sort of what ambient noises and at times it's also quiet. So you're aware of the hum of silence. When I walked out of the theater and I just came from the movie here a little bit earlier tonight, I was hyper aware of. The world seems the noisy. The hum of the escalator oh, okay, that I yeah. was going down. Yep. And the sounds coming from the concession stand. And as I was putting my ticket in the parking machine, I was aware of the machine talking to me <laughs> and how it sounded, which is another thing I like about Vikander's performance, that the only time she ever sounds Siri-like at all is when she's just regurgitating facts. Mm-hmm. There's a point where she says what Nathan's company does, and of course she knows everything it does. And that's the only moment where she sort of sounds like that type of machine. But yeah, I was really aware of all the sounds around me because this movie kind of transported me into this world where we're stuck in this space with these characters. And I'm with you that the visual look of the film is another strength here because there are touches here that really reminded me of some other films and some other filmmakers, but not in ways that felt like he was ripping them off or even that he was trying to pay homages. It just sort of stirred similar reactions in me that these filmmakers do. You already mentioned Hal, certainly Kubrick. I would also say Andrei Tarkovsky. The sterility of that house with those glass walls and thinking about like the ship on 2001, there's more color we get here in this world, certainly even the ship in Solaris a little bit. And some of the shots down those long kind of vertical hallways Mm -hmm. that feel very much like those standard Kubrickian shots that we get. And there is a moment later in the film where Oscar Isaac's character even does that kind of Kubrick face shot where he's looking down but his eyes are kind of peering up like the opening of A Clockwork Orange and we see it in Full Metal Jacket and other films that kind of dread face that he makes there and those questions too that Solaris provokes as far as maybe knowing something isn't real going back to she's not human she's a machine and yet having human feelings for her it makes me think of that movie and a case where your desire may be so strong that even if you know it's not quote unquote true, you'd rather live in that fantasy yeah. than live in the real world. And, and this in, movie certainly makes you think of those same issues. And in Solaris, it's summoning up an actual being. You know, the the fantasy is that strong. The exactly. drive is that strong and the longing. Tarkovsky is a great reference because we do repeatedly jump out of this home, which does have its bunker-like segments, too. Those long halls, you get the impression, are underground Mm -hmm. where more of the lab stuff is going on. So it's not all earthy, but we jump out of that here and there for just shots of this wilderness that it's involved in. And that's, that's something that Tarkovsky frequently does. And also, I think here, again, starts to blur the line between technology and creation, natural and unnatural, Mm -hmm. which is uh, another thing that's always kind of keeping you on edge. Yeah. And there's nothing really flashy about the camera. And at the same point, you do pick up on, or at least I did at one point, that 
the camera is often in motion, though very slowly, very which slowly. does just add to this overall kind of sense of eeriness, where even when it's just two people having a conversation, a lot of times it's slowly tracking in. And I like little touches like the moment where he first shows up at the house and he has his picture taken by the door and it gives him a key card and he goes in and he walks in the door and as the door is closing behind him or not closing because he just kind of leaves it open the camera lingers there for a second and it just makes you focus on the blue light of the door and then him walking in into the darkness into this sort of void and going to the left and then realizing, well, I'm not sure I'm supposed to go that way, so now I'm going to go to the right. And then the door does just slowly close. And that kind of lingering on it just instantly sets the tone that something is just a little bit off. I mean, yep. he is entering this void and he is lost. And also that juxtaposition of the human versus the technological where that door and that light is right in your focus in the foreground and then it does just close behind him we also get a shot in that sequence when he's at the door the security camera we see the security camera's point of view and that's a recurring visual touch throughout the film is a computer's camera a webcam captures one of the actors and we see them so it gives again this sort of higher presence to computers as active beings. I mean, I think it might be one of the first shots of the film. We see Caleb back in his office and and his own computers looking at him. Isn't there even like a, a jumpy one where he seems to have left his smartphone's camera on and he's putting it in his pocket and we see him as the camera goes in right. from the phone's perspective, which is just kind of jarring. So I like how that comes back and repeats throughout the film. So I'm praising this movie a ton. It's probably at this point my favorite of the year that I've seen. And I still have a little question about the ending that I want to ask you because it was an experience I had watching it. A non-spoiler question about the ending? It's a non-spoiler question. I think we could talk about this vaguely. And actually someone brought it up to me on Twitter afterwards. And so I I think it's something people are wondering about. But I was so on board with this movie after, after the climax for sure that it was – I could tell it was coming to a close – But also something else was going on where I thought it might not stop right there. And part of me was just like, just stop. Just stop. I don't want you to do anything else because this could be perfect if you just stop here. And it Mm -hmm. did go on for maybe – it's not long. Maybe two or three minutes. Did you have this – without getting into specifics, did you have this reaction at all or or not? No, I really didn't. I mean I'm trying to now pinpoint the exact moment and I think I know it where you probably would have liked it to end. I – I'm glad we got the moment after it, and I think I'm even glad we got the moment after that, too. Certainly, if you want to go back to what you were saying in terms of it being any kind of warning shot, if it is a prophecy at all, it feels like that at the end of the film. And I'm okay with it. Yeah. Might it have been better if it ended on a little more of an ambiguous note earlier, slightly earlier? Perhaps. Yeah, and I'll say this in its defense. To me, it didn't change anything no. in terms of theme or where it was going or what was going to happen. It's not like it it gave us this last minute twist. It more emphasized what had been done f- before. So Yeah, and I, I'm with you that I was so with the movie as well that it wasn't really until I was reflecting back on it that it hit me how much I didn't go on the journey fully with the Donald Gleason character. Okay. And I don't want to pin it all on him and his performance because I really do think ultimately it's a case where the script is just so strong with the other two characters in this film that it lets him down a little bit. And I do think it asks him to do too much because in that last third, 
we get some moments where this is really compressed. This happens over the course of a week. And sometimes right. that can be really good because it's a pressure cooker and you understand that intensity. But there doesn't seem to be a lot of intensity until all of a sudden the movie really needs things to be intense and needs his character to shift in a way that I just didn't completely buy. Hmm. I felt like the movie needed his character to go in a different direction all of a sudden. And I didn't believe that that character went there. He never sold me on it, unfortunately. And I think that's related, again, to how much maybe are you buying Ava as as a character in what she's selling as that character, Mm -hmm. not the performance. Because I think if you're more in tune with her or the traditional narrative that a robot gets in movies, perhaps it's a little easier to buy Caleb's arc. Maybe. If you're not, if you're a little more suspicious, then you're not quite on board with what he might be doing. One last note I did want to throw in because it was one of my favorite exchanges in the film as we talk about the dialogue a little bit specifically here from Garland. There's a moment, that whole idea of what we crave as humans is intimacy and these moments of honesty and deep connection with someone else what else this movie reveals that we really want and what we need is to not be contained to not be reined in at all and of course we see that in the form of the ava character and how she is effectively a prisoner in right. this world right being this creation who she is can't stuck inside room. yeah this house and stuck inside her room but there's a moment earlier in the film that feels like it could almost be throwaway, but I think underscores all of these themes. When Nathan is showing Caleb around the place for the first time, and they're kind of getting to know each other a little bit, he tells him about the ID card he yeah. has that will allow him to scan into certain rooms, but not certain other rooms. And he sells it, and you believe it, as if it's for his benefit. Right. You know, you're in a strange place. <laughs> you, you don't, don't know lost. where you should go and where you shouldn't go, but hey, this answers it for you. Effectively, what it does is it limits your choices. He's saying the fewer choices you have, the less you have to decide on and maybe err. The safer you'll be. The safer you'll be. And it did make me think about, let's go back to the beginning of time here. Let's go back to the God questions that are present in this film. What happened when... God told Adam and Eve they couldn't do certain things, uh-huh. right? When God limited <laughs> those choices and said, I'm going to restrict your experiences, that didn't work out so well. Basically, when they had their first chance, they defied him. And of course, as you go on and watch this film, it becomes pretty clear that that isn't just his ego talking. That isn't just his sense of power, putting this young protege in his place. It maybe is part of this whole larger endeavor that is going on. And really, it's intended. And a great touch in that scene related to the production design is I'm going on and on about these wonderful glass walls and windows and how this house is just part of nature. Caleb's room, no windows. Of course not. <laughs> and I like that they bring it up, too, and they address it. Nathan, at one point, you know, he says, oh, you don't like it. Oh, well, because there's no windows. But again, he's got an answer for that, yeah, too. Yeah, it's science. So it's he's a like, lab. It's he's not, such a salesman. And I got to say, too, because <laughs> I was wondering how, how this would work for you, because one of the main points of disagreement between us on Interstellar was a lot of the scientific conversations. And I do think, again, Garland's strength, obviously, is as a screenwriter. So uh, he, he should be expected to really manage this well. Well, but the science in this movie, mm-hmm. it doesn't explain everything. No, it's just the right amount. It's just it's doled enough, out. Yeah. And, and it uses just enough details for you to think that you understand how yes. this AI works. Yes. And you're like, oh, that makes sense. And that goes back to me thinking about how this is how it's going to go down. Because he's isn't his argument essentially, well, once we had the Internet and we got access to everyone's mind, they're sharing everything. There's my software. Yeah. He's like, I just download that and, and sift it. 
and we've got AI. And, you know, you're sitting there thinking, now, obviously, that's not how it would work. But you're like, that makes sense. That's not what I was thinking. I was thinking was, that's exactly how it works. That's exactly what's going to happen. (laughs) See? Well, and it helps when Isaac is selling it, too, because he's so good. Yeah, he is. Though there is that great screenwriting moment where you feel like Garland is almost winking at you early in the film when they're talking in that kind of first conversation about this experiment. And he says... What's the Turing test? Yeah. Oh, that was, you know what yeah. that is? And he's like, yeah. Like, like it, these two would have and that he just, conversation. He just pauses like, okay, explain it because the audience needs to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> you a know? little clunky there. It worked okay. That's Ex Machina. It's currently out in Chicago and playing in limited release. It's Josh's favorite movie of the year so far. It's not quite that. But Josh, it's in the conversation. I love it. I'll say that. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. A fresh edition of Massacre Theater is up next, although first I think we have another apology this time about how bad my Vin Diesel impression was in our last performance. Stay with us. It's a temporary fix. Folks, we're excited this week to announce that Film Spotting is brought to you by a new advertiser, Casper. They're an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the cost. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly on to you, the consumer. Some of the benefits of going with Casper, their mattresses are obsessively engineered at a very fair price, and they're comfortable with just the right sink and bounce. Josh, I know how much the right sink and bounce is crucial to you. They use two technologies, latex and memory foam, to provide long-lasting comfort and support. I actually prefer roll bounce, but sink (laughs) bounce is pretty good, too. Fair enough. You can buy it easily online, and this is completely risk-free, so you can try sleeping on a Casper mattress. Casper understands the importance of trying out a mattress that, in reality, you're going to spend a third of your life on. Casper offers free delivery and painless returns with a 100-day period. 100 days. That is a long try it time. Try out. Wow. That way you don't have to do the lie-on-the-bed-in-the-showroom thing. Not good. And did you know, statistically, lying on a bed in a showroom has no correlation to whether it is the right bed for you. I'll buy that. Casper's mattresses are made in the USA, and you can get a mattress for $500 for a twin or $950 for a king-size mattress. Comparing this to industry averages, that's an outstanding price point. You can also save an additional $50 as one of our audience members by going to casper.com slash filmspotting and entering the promo code filmspotting. That's casper.com slash filmspotting and promo code filmspotting. Drove yourself here so you might as well stay Wanna be amazed See the sky on delay We're gonna be using aliases on this job Under no circumstances Do I want any one of you 
to relate to each other by your Christian names. And I don't want any talk about yourself personally. That includes where you've been, your wife's name, where you might have done time, or a bank maybe arrived in, say, Petersburg. All I want you guys to talk about, if you have to, is what you're going to do. I'll tell you exactly what it is we're going to do, Mr. Pink. Why am I Mr. Pink? Welcome back to Film Spotting with Adam and Josh. That's just the way it has to be. I'm sorry, Josh. Next week on the show, instead of the Avengers Iron Man, Captain America, and Incredible Hulk, we're going to talk Mr. Blonde, Mr. White, and Mr. Orange. You did hear the indelible voice of Lawrence Tierney in that clip from Quentin Tarantino's 1992 directing debut, Reservoir Dogs. Do you think that's where Eddie Redmayne got his inspiration for the voice he uses in Jupiter Ascending? The cigarettes, the carton just like stuck in his Exactly. Maybe so. We'll do our long-planned and long-anticipated Sacred Cow review of Reservoir Dogs and continue our year-by-year countdown with the top five films of 1992. That's next week. The following week, we'll get to a review of Avengers, The Age of Ultron. But we have had this Sacred Cow in the works for a while. I remember at our 500th show last summer, we threw out the poll question and had everyone applaud, and it was between Reservoir Dogs or Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven. Yeah. And Reservoir Dogs just edged it out, I believe, but we managed to sneak in that sacred cow of Unforgiven anyway. A the month American or two ago. sniper talk kind of moved that one That's to right. the front. So, so we're still going to do Reservoir Dogs, and as we said, top five of 92. If you have any thoughts on your favorite films of that year that you don't want us to overlook, please email us feedback at filmspotting.net. A couple other notes we did want to share. Last week, we had Steve Procopi, aka Capone, from Ain't It Cool News on to promote the Chicago Critics Film Festival. It starts May 1st, runs through the 7th at the Great Music Box Theater here in Chicago. And he mentioned a certain Western starring a certain Film Spotting Madness champion, whose name won't be mentioned by me. We're going to pick 30 Film Spotting listeners to attend a screening of this film, Slow West. It's Sunday, May 3rd in the afternoon, and it not only stars that Film Spotting Madness champion, but first-round casualty Ben Mendelsohn. So great cast in that film. That's the one I have circled on the calendar I'm going to try to get to. Some arrangements need to be made. Yeah, Debbie's out of town, so leaving me mm. with the kids. So I don't think I can take them to Slow West. Probably not. Probably not. So if I can get that sorted out, I think I'm going to be there. So again, you have a chance to go for free. 30 listeners and bring a guest all you have to do is email us feedback at filmspotting.net put slow west in the subject line and just because i love to read these things tell us your favorite michael fassbender performance you don't have to go into a lot of detail just pick no, your favorite give them a couple paragraphs <laughs> that's at right least. more information about that contest and the chicago critics film festival at filmspotting.net a quick Film Spotting Madness addendum here, Josh, as we're talking about Mr. Fassbender and his victory in our month or so long event. He, of course, faced off in that championship round against Jessica Chastain, a pair we agreed felt right. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out we weren't alone in thinking that. We got an email last week from listener Ryan Ferguson, who either has a savant-like memory or just happened to be going through the Film Spotting archives around the same time as he was listening to Film Spotting Madness. And we had Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune on to discuss, I think it was the final four and setting up that Fassbender-Chastain matchup. It turns out Ryan heard way back on episode 387 when we had Michael on to discuss the 2012 Oscars. Michael had that championship round in mind. For the kind of work that Jessica Chastain has done in the space of one year with Take Shelter, and the help for which she's nominated, and the Tree of Life, I really am quite dazzled by this performer. And 
it's somebody who hasn't hasn't come out of nowhere but it's it's really like Michael Fassbender in that you know somebody who a lot of people feel should have got a nomination for shame um I liked him a good deal in uh, a dangerous method which is a film I like a lot more than most mm-hmm. people and I think Fassbender's really good in just about everything he does. Yeah. He didn't come out of nowhere, and he's done everything from like the, the latest X-Men film to you know all kinds of things. And it's just that some years these <laughs> you're getting two, three, even four sometimes uh, demonstrations and different pictures of what, what kind of range these people really have. I think they're both wonderful people like Fassbender and Chastain where they can – you're getting a sense of who they are underneath their characters. They're, they're, there's – they're not so maniacally versatile that they're completely hiding beneath their characters, you know? Yeah. But I, I think Chastain's really got the stuff for a completely great career for decades. She's like Michelle Williams that way. And with any luck, they're both going to have careers when they're 80. Well, we're certainly with Michael in hoping that Michelle Williams and Chastain and, of course, Michael Fassbender have careers until they are 80. But how about that for a little bit of coincidence spotting that that would be our final matchup that Michael talked about him here on the show. And, of course, he did it three years ago as well. And I think quite eloquently described what makes them such good actors. That is some impressive recall on Ryan Ferguson's part. Instead of the film spotting website search function, can I just email Ryan to yes. ask him if we've talked about anything ever? And he'll immediately like respond. Our, he'll our have it. Drop or something, yeah, our I internal. Right. I like it, Ryan. Thank you very much for the email, and we will be in touch if we need any other random reference located in those murky depths of the Film Spotting archives. For the second week in a row, I think it's the second week in a row, we have a bit of a correction. Or actually, this one is going to be distinguished as a complete non-correction. Oh, okay. Our current poll question at filmspotting.net, maybe not a successful poll, Josh, in that the current leaders are dominating the results. It's not very close, and they aren't remotely surprising. Exactly what we would have predicted, but hugely successful in that it provoked exactly the cranky, pedantic response I was hoping <laughs> for from listener and occasional Film Spotting guest host Chris Klemek on Twitter. Didn't take him long. Show went up Friday morning, last Friday morning. He was on it right away. We asked you to choose the summer 2015, quote, nostalgia reboot that you're most looking forward to. You could go the much-hyped Jurassic World or Mad Max Fury Road or the slightly less-hyped Poltergeist, Terminator, and Vacation movies. It got Chris all riled up. Something about most of these movies actually being sequels, not reboots. What? Yeah. You know. I'm not even, I've not following his logic. Oh, there's a lot of logic. He's written about 3,000 words explaining the logic of what separates a reboot from other types of So our problem was we were Hollywood lumping these together, I guess. Yes, that's exactly right. Though apparently he missed the part where we put nostalgia reboot in quotes because what's really being rebooted with these movies is our nostalgia. Yes. Not the film. Exactly. Our nostalgia. Read the fine print, Chris. <laughs> Film Spotting does not regret the air. Assuming you aren't too confounded by our wording, we encourage you to vote now over at filmspotting.net. And if you do leave a comment, we always hope you do. Please remember to tell us your location. If you don't and we like your comment, you might just get an email from our co-producer, Sam, demanding your whereabouts. And he's not going to be ignored. He's relentless. He is. A little bit of bonus content this week where we're going to share some feedback. I was going to skip it because we've got a lot on our plates this week, but I couldn't resist with a voicemail that we got this week. You're going to hear, first of all, a voicemail from someone who really loved our Fast and Furious episode. But then you're going to hear David in Minneapolis, a longtime listener who hates our show and explains why. And this is related to the Fast and the Furious. Absolutely. Spoiler alert, it's not so much Fast and Furious related as it is 
his love for another recent action movie that oh. we didn't enjoy so much. Hmm, but he that ties be? that back into Fast and Furious. So we'll get to that in our bonus content, which you can access if you have the Film Spotting app. All the information you need is at filmspotting.net. Just click on apps. One final note, and really this is just because we know we have a lot of listeners in New York, specifically in Brooklyn. Got an email from a longtime listener named Alaric Han, who has a great idea. Alaric is trying to have this day, this event, sweep the nation. I don't know if it's going to work, but we're going to do our part here, Josh, because it's happening just a couple days after this show goes up as a podcast and also on the radio. So we'll see if we can lend a hand to Alaric. Adam, I think you have great affection for the 1986 masterpiece Aliens. I may be its most adoring super fan, so I've decided, like Star Wars, May 4th, Aliens needs its own day of celebration. I've started a little event called Aliens Day on April 26th in honor of LV426. LV426, later christened Asheron. Well, come on, Adam. You're you're the world's second biggest Aliens fan. I, I don't want to be revealed to be a fraud, so I'm just going to stay quiet. <laughs> okay. Well, Asheron is the moon where the original alien first encounters the creature and where the sequel Aliens takes place some 50 years later. We're having a party in Brooklyn on that Sunday, but I wanted to get you in on the fun. I hope you'll take a moment on 426 to give a virtual high five to this film on its 29th anniversary. If all goes well, maybe Sigourney will come to our party next year. First name basis with Sigourney. Apparently. Maybe she will. <laughs> I hope she's on the invite list. No word on whether Alaric's party is open to the public. I guess maybe just stroll around Brooklyn and keep a lookout for face huggers or just throw your own aliens party let's make this a thing 426 aliens day are you Alien in celebration like star wars has their own convention i see that in the future this is going to be huge i hope so i really hope so josh let's move on now to massacre theater we perform a scene badly and you get a chance at winning a prize last time we massacred this something interesting about this car just admiring the body work are you one of those boys who prefers cars to women? I'm one of those boys that appreciates a fine body regardless of the make. Your car? It's Phoenix's car. You'll meet him at the rendezvous. He'll be leading you. So now that I know you're tasting cars, tell me, what about your women? Well, it starts with the eyes. She's got to have those kind of eyes that can look right through the bullshit to the good in someone. 20% angel, 80% devil. Down to earth. Ain't afraid to get a little engine grease under her fingernails. That doesn't sound anything like me. It ain't. That was Vin Diesel as Dominic Toretto and Gal Gadot as Giselle in which Fast and Furious? The fourth. Movie? Fast and Furious. And what? You're right. Yeah. You still got it. That's from 2009. It was written by Chris Morgan and Gary Scott Thompson, one of the many Fast and Furious films directed by Justin Lin. We massacred that a couple weeks back on episode 533, our Fast and Furious extravaganza. We reviewed Furious 7 and shared our top five Fast and Furious moments. Aaron White wrote in, that was a horrible performance, Josh. Just horrible. I can't do a very good Vin Diesel either, though, so I'm impressed with your attempt. It's harder than you think. The scene is in Fast and Furious 4 and features the wonderful Gal Gadot as Giselle. I'm so excited to see her as Wonder Woman. She's one of my favorite Fast and Furious universe characters. I'm with Aaron completely. 
And also, she, of course, has a relationship in those films with Han. Those two characters are my two underrated characters in the whole franchise. So, Wow. I, I hadn't listed my underrated characters in the future Fast top five franchise. Okay. I'm going to save it for that. But them. because of finally catching up with this series, marathoning all of the Fast and Furious films, I, too, now actually am invested a little bit in Wonder in Woman. Wonder Woman. Because You're ready for Wonder Woman. I like Gal Gadot, and I want to see what she's going to do with the part. We're reviewing Wonder Woman. I can't wait. <laughs> we will. Matthew Brennan, Portland, Oregon, said, I was always disappointed that they didn't name the fourth film in the franchise Fast and Furious. <laughs> More puns. Get that? Yeah. They just keep coming. Got a lot of Fast and Furious here. Thank you, Matthew. We'll split this one up here. I'll start. Jefferson Hyde in Seattle, Washington, who has been known over the years to have some fun with our Massacre Theater entries and his feedback. He does not disappoint. Obviously, the scene is from effing fast and way furious. <laughs> the tie-in with the rest of the show is equally, obviously, subversion. Just as the Fast and Furious franchise subverted the tenets of good taste by warming its way onto film spotting, so too does the scene in question subvert the disparate nature of man and machine. It is pointless to ask whether one prefers the woman or the car because they're the same thing. And not just because Deep Purple's Highway Star says so. The Fast and the Furious shows us a model where the individual and the vehicle form a kind of superorganism with a greater purpose than its components. The car is not a tool. It is, in fact, a symbiote. Can cars fly? Nope. Can a fusion of car and ludicrous fly? Yep. Man and car have conjoined and evolved into a higher species. Indeed, the bevy of scantily clad people omnipresent throughout the series demonstrates that when you take away the car, the skin, if you will, you are left with mindless, naked, atavistic shells of what passed for mankind before the dawn of the singularity. It is a new age, and the fast and the furious is its herald. I have to admit, after listening to this scene and considering the ramifications, I have to reconsider my stance on this franchise. I originally thought these movies were mostly drivel, spat out by the Scriptomatic 1000, but now I believe they were carefully penned by the Scriptomatic 1003. So it's evolved. It's, it's evolved. evolved. P.S. I apologize for adding to the already terrifically deep Josh Larson was like, well, but Josh Larson was like Humphrey Bogart on Vicodin. It was awesome. And that is dead on because <laughs> I suggested that you had maybe had a shot of Novocaine before performing that yep, scene. Yep. My wife heard the scene over the weekend and she goes, is he doing Bogart? Really? Yeah, she said that. And okay. then Jefferson said Bogart on Vicodin. That's correct. I wish I had been thinking of that. I, I deeply apologize for that performance to the listeners. You to, had it to Vin Diesel and I you apologize. You had it different in your head and I, it didn't oh, come out that way. I thought I was going to really get that one. I, I'm even apologizing to myself. That's what makes it so juicy reach into the film spotting hat it is not at all brimming josh i don't know if we maybe didn't have people who were on board with this franchise before that show maybe they are now after listening to us we had fun with that episode but man some people were confused or just not interested or because the vicodin kicked in before the end of the scene you distracted everyone with that performance because very few people correctly identified Effin' Fast and Way Furious, or Fast and Furious 4 as the correct scene. So reach into the hat, pick out this week's winner. The winner is Aaron Schweigart from Covington, Kentucky. Congratulations, Aaron. Longtime listener. I think he's even been to a live show or two. Aaron, email feedback at filmspotting.net to claim your very own Film Spotting t-shirt. Dracula requires presence. It, it's all in the eyes and the voice and the head. That's right. That's right. You seem a little agitated. You want to go outside and get some air? I'm ready now. Roll the camera. A shot at redemption here for Josh with Massacre Theater this week. You're going to get the really juicy part. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I, I have to make up for that, Diesel. <laughs> Though, just like that Diesel performance, we may be here all night getting through these lines. <laughs> it's not a very long scene. It could take about 33 minutes. This character chooses his words carefully. 
indeed. We did change one word to try to make it a little bit less obvious. I think that's right. And now it is a clue. Yeah. Sometimes we like to throw in a little bit of a hint when we change those words. Hopefully it'll help some of you out. Josh, you start. Are you ready? Let's do it. And action. You will. I trust. Excuse me that I do not join you, but I have already dined and I never drink wine. An ancestor? I see a resemblance. The Order of the Zorg, the Dragon, an ancient society pledging my forefathers to defend the church against all enemies of Christ. That relationship was not entirely successful. Oh, yes. It is no laughing matter. We Zogs have a right to be proud. What devil or witch was ever so great as Attila whose blood flows in these veins? <laughs> and scene. That was no sound effect, people. That oh, was all Josh no. Larson. That was voice work. That came from the gut. I actually need you to do that again. I think that was maybe a little too loud. <laughs> did I, I think it spiked a little did too I much. Break a microphone? I think you did. You broke the whole board <laughs> with that one. Sorry. Josh. Well, <laughs> that was amazing. If you know what scene we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Man, I'm never going to make you angry again. <laughs> your deadline is Monday, May 4th. And yes, may the 4th be with you. Though that was not the character speaking of May the 4th be with you, that I did at our 500 live show. It may have sounded a bit like him. That's true. You went back to that well, didn't you? There's some differences there. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on the show in a couple of weeks. To get official Massacre Theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. Will I be visiting a certain house on Archer Avenue in the spring of my 41st year? The Film Spotting Top 5 is next. Stay with us. get to our donations and some thank yous here in a moment. But first, we have some listener testimonials, Josh, for Squarespace, the all-in-one website platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website. They've been a sponsor of Film Spotting for a few years now, and we are very fortunate to have them back on board. The last time we mentioned Squarespace, a month or so ago, I teased the fact that we had a listener, Sam Mowry in Chicago, been to many live shows. And she has a website that she built through Squarespace, and we were going to give out that domain and talk about it, and then we didn't. We just didn't get to it. What happened? I don't remember, but I failed, Josh. It happens sometimes. I wanted to 
make good on that now. As Sam says, I've been listening to Film Spotting for years and even took Adam's class last summer, but I only recently switched to Squarespace. You'll be proud to know that I used your code. It took us several weeks to build my website the first time and literally one evening to recreate the whole layout in Squarespace. It was so easy. I was shocked. It turns out all the testimonials you read from other listeners are right. There you go. We wouldn't lie to you. Visit SamanthaMowry.com. That's M-O-W-R-Y.com. Another testimonial came from Julio Oliveira. He's in Austin, Texas, where we are maybe, likely, Live possibly July this summer. July. I want to see you sweat, Josh. Julio says, I'd been waiting for you to put out a new call for Squarespace sites to be featured. My friend Alex and I have finally started doing the podcast we'd been talking about for most of 2014. And when it came time to create a website that would host it, I decided to follow my heart and go with the service promoted on FilmSpotting. So easy to set up. I know virtually nothing about web page making. And in just a few hours, I had a cool little blog hosting our podcast, The Contrarians, in which Alex and I pick a movie with a high rating on Rotten Tomatoes and proceed to argue against all the praise. Conversely, every other episode, we take a movie with a low tomato meter score and do the opposite. Then at the end of every episode, we have a real talk segment where we tell you how we actually feel about the movie in question. It doesn't always match our opinions from the first half of the show. So, so they're just screwing with everybody is what they're <laughs> that's doing. That's exactly right. A little bit of humor there, Josh. But considering that that's your entire approach to film criticism. <laughs> All right. Speaking to the guy who destroyed Evil Dead, uh-huh. the Sam Raimi classic, destroyed. on Rotten Tomatoes, destroyed it. For all Don't time. forget about To Kill a Mockingbird. That one, too. I think you need to be a featured guest on The Contrarians. <laughs> the website is wearethecontrarians.com. It's no film spotting, Julio says. Thank you. But we like to think it's a lot of fun. And like I said, creating the website was super easy. And so is updating it whenever we have a new episode. We hope you guys and your listeners can check it out. So I haven't had a chance to listen yet, but I did go to the site. I like to vet these before we... Mm-hmm promote them on the show and they reviewed Jaws and there was a line in their description that says join Alex and Julio as they delve into Steven Spielberg's disgusting anti-shark propaganda blockbuster. <laughs> wow. So there you go. That's that's on the level of Michael Phillips going against Raiders. That's true. I mean. <laughs> that's true. Squarespace, they do offer beautiful templates, integration with Google Apps and Getty Images, and a feature called Cover Pages. All of their sites feature responsive design, so your site looks great on any device and comes with a free online store. Squarespace offers 24-7 live chat and email support. And Josh, of course, you can try it out for free. You can just start building the website by going to squarespace.com and entering the code FILM. That's squarespace.com and use the code FILM for a special offer. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Well, speaking of beautiful, hopefully some great sounds you are taking in this week as our featured artist is Damien Gerardo from his 2014 album Brothers and Sisters of the Eternal Sun, a Seattle-based musician. He's been bumped twice now over the past two weeks in favor of music from the Fast and Furious series and for Ron Sexsmith. So, you know, we had valid reasons, but he's now finally made the cut. I was completely unfamiliar with Damien Gerardo until I caught him on tour opening for Jason Isbell here in Chicago, and I thought it was a great set, really great voice. More information about him at DamienGerardo.com. Let's get to a few donations. It'll be a quick segment this week, Josh. We do thank all of our monthly donors who are such a vital part of keeping this show going, but we do have a shout-out that goes to Omar Muniz. Omar has been listening to the show forever, and his mother, Mary, they're here in Chicago, donated on his behalf. His birthday is April 30th. They're going to celebrate it, though, this Sunday. We thank Mary and we thank Omar for his great support. Not only has he been a listener for so many years, but I checked the mailbag today and saw some of his feedback. And I don't know if we got a chance to read this one, but there was a top five a year or so ago, Josh, that was like sexual awakening movies or something. And Omar sent in his top five and all five of them were fantastic art house picks. Three of them 
I'd never even heard of. So I don't know why Omar is listening to this show. He basically should be doing this He show. doesn't need us. Happy birthday anyway, Omar. Indeed. We also have a new Silver Club donor, Stephen in San Francisco, and one new $5 a month donor. He is Paul in Napa, California. We are Hey, this is Mark Duplass, and you're listening to Film Spotting. Never again. It, 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 nobody is going to use my apartment from now on. Where is your apartment, Baxter? West 67th Street. You have no idea what I've been going through with the neighbors and the landlady and the liquor and the key and... How do you work with the key? I usually slip it to him in the office and maybe leave it under a mat. It's never again. I can promise you that. Jack Lemmon and Fred McMurray in that scene from Billy Wilder's classic The Apartment, a movie that will not populate either of our top five lists this week, movie houses, because, of course, it's apartments. We see a lot of apartments in The Apartment, and I don't think we see any homes. So if you're being very literal, and we'll see how literal we get here with our selections, it doesn't apply. It also doesn't apply because The Apartment's in the film spotting pantheon. Well-deserved. So it's not eligible. There are other movies that aren't eligible as we think about this list of homes, houses, movie structures, domestic dwellings that are memorable. This came from, of course, our review earlier in the show of Ex Machina and that great home out in the middle of nowhere that is such a prominent character in that film. Some other homes we couldn't consider, Jackie Treehorn's house in The Big Lebowski. How about Xanadu in Citizen Kane and the Corleone compound in the Godfather and Godfather 2, those movies also in the Pantheon. Dorothy's House in The Wizard of Oz. Good point. That one's out we of could bounds, go, too. We could go with a few others there in the Pantheon. But did you have any other restrictions or any other rules as you set about making your list, Josh? I do not have any apartments. I have one that might fudge a little bit. We'll see when I get to it. But basically, mostly what I wanted to do is have homes that were used for more than just atmosphere. So it set the mood maybe in the first 10, 15 minutes, and then it was pretty much in the background. I wanted a home that functioned narratively and thematically throughout the movie as that house does in Ex Machina. That sounds good. What's your number five? So my number five is the demonic house in Hausu. This is one of the more popular listener suggestions on Twitter, and it was a movie that I was only vaguely aware of. I'd heard about it, knew it had this reputation of being a surreally bizarre horror film, so I thought, hey, why not check it out? If not now, when am I going to? It's from Japan, came out in 1977, and it's about a group of vacationing schoolgirls who visit an older aunt who lives alone in this creepy older home of the title. I'm going to lean on whoever wrote the description for this movie on the Criterion website. I couldn't find a byline, but they really nailed it. They said, how to describe Nobuhiku Obayashi's indescribable 1977 movie, Haosu, as a psychedelic ghost tale, a stream of consciousness bedtime story, an episode of Scooby-Doo as directed by Mario Bava. That really does get to it. All of that applies given the loony narrative here and the nutty filmmaking techniques that are employed. This thing has superimposed imagery, fisheye lenses, freeze frames, fade outs, matte paintings, animated effects. I'm sure a bunch of other stuff. It's all going on so quickly and happening at the same time. I think it deserves a place on this list, though, because as I mentioned at the start here, the house isn't just this setting for 
atmosphere. It's a demonic presence, especially in the climax when the tatami mats on the floor, they spread apart to reveal that there's essentially a pool of blood beneath this entire home. This is so bizarre that it never really snuck over to the scary for me. So maybe, Adam, you could handle it if if you want to check it out. Maybe, because I have not seen Zoo, And the only reason I know anything about it is because friend of the show, Sam Smith, in Nashville, great musician and great artist, is in love with this movie. And I want to say designed the poster for the Belcourt Theater there nice. when they showed this movie and actually took his talents to Criterion and he designed the Criterion Collection artwork for that DVD edition. So shout out to Sam Smith. That's a great pick. Some restrictions I did put on my list. I didn't want to go with hotels. So sorry, Barton Fink, the Hotel Earl, not going to make the list. I did try to avoid apartments. So no Dakota from Rosemary's Baby and many others I won't mention because we just might at some point have to do our top five we're gonna need apartments. We have done hotels before, I think. In my penalty box, if these movies were available and they're not anyway blade runner that's an apartment in the film for deckard that ennis house in la and the overlook hotel and the shining but they're in my penalty box anyway one other little rule i had josh was the name of the house couldn't be the title of the movie okay may, so no great gardens why just because i talk <laughs> about these movies too much it seems like that would kind of hint that they'd be perfect but for that's this also list. why it's a little too easy oh okay. i felt like that yes. was a little too obvious and i, I didn't see. want to go down that path so gray gardens from the mazels and my beloved the lake house is oh, not that... going to make my top <laughs> now five. i understand why you were just finding a way to not to have mention to put the, the lake house, house but not put it <laughs> okay. as my number one Got which it. is where it belongs i did try to come up with a criteria and i came up with a pretty good one that unfortunately I wasn't able to really apply to my list. Maybe if I had had more time, Josh. I'm still going to say it because I like the criteria, okay. which I tried to think about a movie where I'd be likely to watch another movie set there just based on the house. I didn't know the director. Hmm. I didn't know the cast. I didn't know the story. You just told me that house, that structure is going to be at the center of the film. Would I be drawn to that movie? Like I said, great idea. That's great idea. Great useless I didn't follow through. criteria. We need more great well, useless criteria. Let's move on to more great useless picks. My number five, sticking with the horror theme, is Poltergeist. Not the one coming out, but the original from Toby Hooper, nice. 1982. I actually wasn't sure what my number five pick was going to be coming here tonight. And then I went to see Ex Machina, and I had to suffer through the trailer one more time for the upcoming Poltergeist with Handy. Sam Rockwell and Rosemary DeWitt, two really great actors, but I just think it looks really bad. And what I realized is the Poltergeist did work for this list because obviously the house is a central figure in the movie. And what I love about it for this list isn't just that there are evil spirits who might steal your daughter and make clowns come to Let's life and attack your son at night. Let's not talk about the clowns, okay? Just Ooh. move on. Ooh, I know. Move I know on. where to go with you now if I need to play that card, Josh. What I really love about the house is how much I don't love the house. It's utterly unremarkable. If you look at pictures of it or go back and watch the movie, it's just kind of this big, ugly, suburban thing. It's a little bit of a monstrosity. It's the kind of house that a couple of baby boomers in the 80s think they need and think is emblematic of some kind of financial success. Otherwise, there's no character to it whatsoever on the outside or the inside, just like every other house that's in this new development. They all look kind of the same. 
And you kind of are left asking yourself, is this what they sold out their ideals for? And the movie says, yes, that's the subtext of this movie, at least for me. I've always argued this is that, yes, Craig T. Nelson, Joe Beth Williams, they're fundamentally good people. They seem they aren't overly greedy. They love their kids. They're just trying to keep their family together. They're not the ones who make the choice to build an entire housing development on a burial ground, but they are, I think it suggested, a couple of flower children who grow up and become the kind of people who think they need their piece of the American dream, who get caught up in the materialism of it. And that desire is the reason why these moral compromises are made. And as I watch the trailer for the new one, I'm left thinking, okay, that's the subtext of the original. That gives it some weight. There's a little bit of commentary there. What's the new version all about? Is it really just about new slash old ways to scare us again. Maybe that's going to be enough. But one of the reasons I appreciate the original Poltergeist is that I think there was a terror that people like my parents actually saw in that couple. Thinking about not only what might happen to their kids and how they would react in such a situation, but seeing themselves a little bit in that couple, I think was also crucial. Well, and it's purposefully unremarkable as well so that it can be, we can all relate to mm-hmm. it, at least anyone who's grown up in sort of suburban America. Yeah, right? that's a good point. It, it's not Hill House or house. something like that. It could be your house that <laughs> Or a friend's turns house. Or it's, it's familiar, and yep. that's creepy. Also creepy, the reason I'm going to just mention the clown quickly, we'll move on. He was on my list of top five terrifying characters. That's true. And then one thing I don't like about that trailer is he's not scary in that. So if you can't get that right, forget it. My number four, I thought about the Bates Mansion in Psycho. That was the first Hitchcock house that did come to mind for me. But then I remembered Manderley, which is the sprawling estate that is on the English coast in Hitchcock's Rebecca. It belongs to Maximilian de Winter, played by Laurence Olivier, and he's a widower who has remarried to Joan Fontaine, but his late wife, Rebecca, seems to haunt the place still. This is especially true in the West Wing, which was Rebecca's part of the house and is now kept off limits. So an entire half of this home looms over the proceedings like a threat. That room in the West Wing I was telling you about is there through that door. It's not used now. It's the most beautiful room in the house. The only one that looks down across the lawns to the sea. It was Mrs. De Winter's room. There are other touches that also emphasize Rebecca's presence, the fact that her initials are still on nearly every piece of linen or the stationery that's around. The servants, especially the ghoulish Mrs. Danvers, played by Judith Anderson, they're constantly referencing Rebecca, and they even expect the Fontaine character to continue her habits and routines. So what this does is Rebecca is sort of – it's a ghost story partly, but it also works pretty well because of its use of the house in Manderley as a haunted house story too with, again, the home as a central character. Yeah, that's a great pick. A lot of Hitchcock movies in consideration and that's one I also thought about. My number four is a house, Josh, that I know you're really disappointed. You're still distraught about the fact that last year when it was on the market had been on the market for a while. They were asking $2.3 million. You put in your $1 million bid, and it just didn't go through. It was beat out by the $1.06 million bid for Cameron's house from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. That one got away from me, yeah. Which is true. an actual house, more like a garage, as we'll talk about here in a moment, out in Highland Park, I think, the Chicago suburb. And I think this one is so prevalent in my mind, Josh, because it's this glass structure out in the middle of the forest, isolated, 
alone makes me think a little bit of the house in yeah. Ex Machina yeah. on a much smaller level. Similar materials used and, in it, sure. Yeah, and I kept looking at pictures of it and thinking back on my memory of it, and I'm like, how is there even a house there? It really does seem more like a place just to park cars. And I read a description of it when it was for sale, and it says that the 4,300-square-foot home built in 1953 has a timeless, modernist vibe and a four-car interior parking. So basically, there's more than enough room for a classic sports car collection. Well, of course, that becomes a key plot point in the mm-hmm. movie. And the real emotional underpinning of Cameron's character is all his dad really cares about is that Ferrari. And this really is more of a garage. The house holds four cars. And that's what it feels like it was built for. It's not a place of warmth. It's not a place that is supposed to feel really like a home. And it doesn't to the character we know, the only character we know who lives there. I also like the fact, and one of the reasons I thought about for this list, that it's all glass, which suggests to you transparency, suggests this idea that the people living there have nothing to hide and it's all out in the open. But what we learn from watching Cameron in the movie is that it's just a den of misery and angst and regret. I can picture it so clearly, and it seems as if it's almost floating up there in the yeah. trees, that, that garage. Yeah, great pick. Josh, your number three, movie house. It's the Amberson Mansion in The Magnificent Ambersons. Citizen Kane's Xanadu is the obvious way to go with Orson Welles, of course, but as you mentioned, Adam, it is in the Pantheon, so ineligible. Plus, this gave me a chance to make a little progress on my blind-spotting master list. I had not seen Magnificent Ambersons before. It is Welles' follow-up to Kane, famously interfered with by the studio, resulting in an 88-minute disputed cut. Even that, though, is rife with Wells' genius, especially in the ways that he employs this mansion, which is at the film's center. The movie itself largely traces the downfall of this once great Midwestern family in the early 20th century. There's deep focus cinematography here that emphasizes the sprawling emptiness of the mansion. There's crane shots that rise up within this multi-level central staircase where a number of confrontations among family members take place. And then even outside, when there are characters sitting in the yard or talking somewhere, the mansion itself seems to lord over them in the background like this oppressive force. So the mansion's given such a prominence in the story uh, as this symbol of the family's power that the movie actually opens with a comic montage of the neighbors praising it. There it is! The Amberson Mansion. The pride of the town. Well, well. $60,000 for the woodwork alone. Hot and cold running water? Upstairs and down. And stationary washstands in every last bedroom in the place. So Magnificent Amberson's Mansion, that's what I'm going with. Glad I could finally see it for this Yeah, list. that's an honorable mention for me, and I'm so glad you did finally see the Magnificent Ambersons. My number three, also from the classic days of Hollywood, and a really obvious pick. So obvious that it will allow me to be very brief and actually let the screenwriters here and the actors, Billy Wilder and Charles Brackett, with their voice, Joe Gillis, of course, played by William Holden, do the heavy lifting for me. It is Norma Desmond's decaying mansion in Sunset Boulevard. When Joe Gillis first turns into that driveway and he's climbing the staircase, he says this, it was a great big white elephant of a place, the kind crazy movie people built in the crazy 20s. A neglected house gets an unhappy look. This one had it in spades. Such good descriptive writing there. And then, of course, later, after he's actually been there for a little while, He describes it this way. Come to think of it, the whole place seemed to have been stricken with a kind of creeping paralysis, out of beat with the rest of the world, crumbling apart in slow motion. 
there was a tennis court. Or rather, the ghost of a tennis court. With faded markings and a sagging net. And of course she had a pool. Who didn't then? Mabel Norman and John Gilbert must have swum in it 10,000 midnights ago. That whole idea of the pool that, of course, memorably opens and closes the film is such a striking marker of Hollywood's success and the thought of those former legendary actors and actresses frolicking in that pool says so much about what that place probably was and, of course, now isn't with the rats in the bottom of the pool. But what I think really strikes me about this whole structure, besides the decay and the way that reflects what's happened to Norma Desmond's career and how she's let it go along with herself to some extent, just in terms of her overall career and her sanity, is the way that Joe Gillis refers to all the Norma Desmonds that are scattered throughout that whole house. It really is not just crumbling, but it's almost a mausoleum to former versions of herself to the dead bodies of Norma Desmond that have been left along the way. And it does become, of course, a bit of a prison as well. Despite the sprawling structure, it does become essentially a prison for Joe Gillis. Yeah, there's very much a wax museum feel to that whole place, too. For sure. My number two is the castle in Howell's Moving Castle, which is the one where maybe I'm cheating a little bit. I actually chose the castle. Is that castle. a duplex or well, is that a ranch? One of the wonderful things about it is that it's almost a jumbling of different houses. It looks like a medieval hamlet in a lot of ways, more than a castle. And I put this on my list of top five Miyazaki characters when we did this on episode 478 because it has such a presence of its own as a character. It's actually more fitting for this list when it moves around on those mechanical chicken legs. Uh, it, it definitely has its own feel. And it does function more as a home, too. Once we get inside, we spend a lot of time in this one room with uh, Howell, the wizard, and then Calcifer, this fire demon. They, they sort of hang out, and a magical feature of this room is a door that can open onto multiple locations. It's like a portal. So I think this is just another great example of how Miyazaki can take something simple and everyday, in this case, the idea of a home that we're all familiar with, and just turn it into a thing of imagination and wonder. I like that movie, and I like that dwelling. So... I'm going to you're allow, going to allow it. it. Yeah, Thank you. I think you're good there. I know you're going to allow my number two, and I can't wait to hear why you may have left this off your list entirely, Josh. You teased it, but I'm the one going with the Tenenbaum House nice. from Wes Anderson's The Royal Tenenbaums. And of course, Wes Anderson just seems so perfect for a list like this, because how often are the locations in his movies referred to as ornate and almost like little dollhouses? And they are so meticulously constructed and designed that you know he cares a lot about those spaces. And I did find, I'm going to link to this in our show notes if you want to watch it, an episode of Pop Pilgrims from 2011. I just the watched Club. that today. Yeah, yep. They went to the space and they talked to one of the location scouts. I can't remember his exact title, but they did some of the backstory or filled some of that in on the house in New York that does actually exist that ended up being the location of this house. And I thought it was really fascinating to hear that he hadn't really finished the script until they found the house. And that seems a little bit counterintuitive at first. And then you really realize with someone like Wes Anderson and how much attention he pays to those locations that, of course, he needs to be able to visualize 
those rooms. He needs to visualize that space when he's writing for these characters. And they also get into just the heightened reality of it. There's an artificiality to it where it feels like New York if you're watching it, but also like an imagined New York, like something out of a fairy tale almost. And when you start with that great opening... Royal Tenenbaum bought the house on Archer Avenue in the winter of his 35th year. Over the next decade, he and his wife had three children, and then they separated. That crane shot that shows you the three kids in their spaces and then pans left and shows the entire home and how much of the block it takes up, you see how all of these interior spaces feel like what the interiors of the Tenenbaum imaginations would be, if that makes any sense. Like, somehow they just were constructed solely by their whims. Right. You know, from their imagination, they willed them into being. And a little bit like Sunset Boulevard, too, it's grand. It's this mansion, but it is also decaying a little bit, sort of like this family. It's falling apart. It has seen better times. But The Tenenbaums, I think I'm on record as saying, is still my favorite Wes Anderson movie. I think it is. I think I have it ranked as my favorite Anderson film, though I have not watched it in its entirety since it came out. So I'm hanging on to the nostalgia, just like maybe The Tenenbaums are. But I do love that home. Respectable choice. And yeah, it's probably my number six. I can't hog all the... Wes Anderson picks. So thank you. Had to give you a turn. My number one is Villa Arpel in Mononcla. This is Jacques Tati's satire from 1958, in which his bumbling, old fashioned M. Hulot visits his sister, her husband, and their son, the Arpels, in their ultra modern suburban home. Hulot lives himself in this ramshackle apartment complex that's in the older part of the center of town. This home, though, is a very sanitized and automated place. It's comprised of these perfectly placed boxes. In fact, the the upper story looks like a robot head, and there's a great gag. There are two circular windows in it where it must be the Arpels bedroom because in one late night shot, they both poke their heads up to look out it, and because of the lighting and the silhouette effect, it looks exactly like the pupils to the robot's eyeballs. It also has this precisely outlined garden with rigidly structured pathways and demarcated areas for specific activities, so everything has to take place in its own outlined space. I found an article on Arc Daily, I think it is. Daniel Portillo wrote this. It was about films that have significantly incorporated architecture. And this is what he wrote. Each element of Villa Arpel is representational rather than functional, an environment completely hostile to the comfort of its occupants. In choosing modern architecture to punctuate his satire, Tati once stated, geometrical lines do not produce likable people. From impossible to sit on furniture to a kitchen with the decibel level of a jet engine, every facet of Villa Arpel emphasizes the supremacy of superficial aesthetics and electrical gadgets over the reality of daily living. This is all true, but I have to confess that the clean lines of this place and just the austere spaces really appealed to me. I mean, I totally understand in this movie we're supposed to scoff at the way Modernity has buffed out the messiness of real life, the earthiness of real life. That's the overall point, and it's something at heart I agree with. But I could see myself living in in Villa Arpel. I'd just try not hmm. to be as uptight about it. You know. Well, another great choice, Josh. You definitely win this top five in terms of coming up with off-the-beaten-path picks. And, of course, as always, you were eloquent in explaining them. Sometimes, though, you have to go with the obvious one. And that's what I did at number one here. It is the Bates House from Psycho. You can go with Mandalay if you want. But what structure, when you think about homes, what's the one that first comes into your mind from 
the entire history of cinema, certainly American cinema, you have to admit you thought of Alfred Hitchcock and the Bates House probably in the first one or two movies that popped into your head. Oh, yeah. There is something about the way that house is shot. And I haven't been able to go back and really study it to break it down and know why. Of course, it's dark, it's menacing, it's creepy, it's falling apart. But something about not only the way Hitchcock shoots it at low angles, so it seems what I was so much more menacing, yes. but also I love how it looms over the motel, mm-hmm. right? When he shoots the motel, it's this horizontal structure. And then right there behind it, of course, what we learn later there's mother. It's like this psychological representation of what's haunting the Anthony Perkins character. And it's so unreal, too. Yeah. There's no way that a house could be positioned there. The That's spacing right. just doesn't work out, but you accept it. No, I love that you said that because as I'm looking at a picture of it here, the one thing that does occur to me is how high it is, how vertical it is, but it seems like it has no depth at all. Right. Almost like, how is it being held up? And of course, that may have to do with the fact that I think I saw somewhere that it really wasn't fully built at the time. You know, it, it, it is a little bit front, of... Like, yeah, a, like a Western It set. didn't have that much depth. Right. It's a little bit of movie magic but it really does add to the creepiness that something just seems off kilter with that house like you don't understand how it's being held up and yet it's there looming in the background the whole time and obviously we weren't trying to make a top five list of the creepiest structures ever but when you say haunted house or home that you would never want to go inside by yourself at night i think the first one any of us think of is psycho in that Bates that house. staircase yeah yeah that staircase itself is terrifying that winding yeah did i did I ever tell you the first time I saw Psycho, the, the instance where it was completely inappropriate? I don't know how I, old I was, very young, too young, at like a cousin's house. And this was when WGN Chicago would play these Hitchcock marathons. So this was on and all the rest of the family was over. So my parents were there, cousins, aunts, uncles, and the kids were all shoved off to another room. We saw Psycho. And that scene on that staircase of who is it who gets who gets attacked? It's it's just it's kind of like a periphery character at first. Too long. Oh man, that's just awful. And something about that staircase too makes sense with the verticality of the house. Mm-hmm. Like thinking about it now, it almost seems like it's probably the angle they shoot it at that it did go straight up in an impossible degree. That's which, it. Yeah, and of course, spooky the, stuff. The classic shot. Speaking of spooky, of the mom there in the mm-hmm. window silhouetted there in the frame so i had to go with the obvious one it is the bates house from alfred Hitchcock's psycho those are our top five movie houses josh what are some other ones you considered so two easy pickings for me would have been up the house from up but definitely came to mind right away the conjuring another haunted house in that one really good horror film Steamboat Bill Jr., it's just one shot, essentially, but where the house falls on Buster Keaton. Yeah, He's I thought about that, too. It's just, you know, it's kind of like a one-shot thing. Yes. So can't quite count for this list. Tarkovsky, The Sacrifice, has a central house that goes down in a magnificent fire scene in the end. And also, as you were talking about Solaris, in our review of Ex Machina, there is a house back on Earth that figures prominently in That's that true. film, too. A few more here. A Single Man, that's more of that clean architecture that yeah. really appeals to me. I love that house. And Swiss Family Robinson. I would maybe go, I love that treehouse as a kid, but that is such a terrible, terrible movie, aside from the treehouse that I just couldn't put it on a list. I've never seen it, so I oh. can't weigh in on Swiss Family Robinson. Painful. This is how I spent my day. This list made me Google things like, is the Fortress of Solitude Superman's house yes, or a base? House. But 
I found a website that said, no, it's more like his headquarters. No, it's his house. Well, he's got to clean the gutters and everything. <laughs> the gutters. Yeah. I'm going to include it as an honorable mention, even if it's not his house. I like to think of it that way. Speaking of haunted houses, the Hill House from The Haunting, I think it's the 63 version that I definitely have in mind. A movie we split on recently, The One I Love, The House, playing a very prominent role in that movie. There are actually two the homes. The Guest House, too. The yeah. Guest House, where some sort of supernatural things occur. Boo Radley's House from To Kill a Mockingbird, the Ekdal Home from Bergman's Fanny and Alexander. We've had two great houses in our recent Satchajit Ray Marathon, Charulata and The Music Room. Music Room, the sure. The movies take place almost entirely in those spaces i thought about the ambersons of course as i mentioned and the evil dead the cabin in yeah. the raimi film those were some picks of mine that just didn't quite make the cut send us your picks or any other comments about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net you can also leave us a voicemail 312-264-0744 or find us on twitter at filmspotting that's adam i'm at larson on film we're also at facebook.com slash filmspotting out in wide release this weekend the age of adeline with blake lively as a woman who never ages harrison ford and ellen burston star so no Benjamin Button funny business going on here. She just doesn't age. She's not going backwards. That's what it sounds like. That's what it sounds like. But okay. speaking of people who do age, but shouldn't, Han Solo. Yeah, I didn't watch that. George so. Lucas did not ruin my childhood. Old Han Solo ruined my childhood. <laughs> I blame J.J. Abrams. It's that scarring, For huh? me, it is. Everyone else seems to be just in love with it and thinks it's the greatest thing ever. I think I'm going Depressing. on Star Wars fast. Really? From now on. I did watch the first teaser. I thought you liked to read the books, Josh. <laughs> well, I'm going to read all those extraneous Star Wars books. That's yes. okay. But in terms of teasers about the new movie, okay, I'm going to take a break. Little Boy, this is a film about a boy going to great lengths to return his father safely from World War II. Emily Watson, Tom Wilkinson, and Kevin James star. Wow. Not that Kevin James. How does he do it? I mean, he's making this, Paul Blart too. The guy's a machine. We're going to move on. The Water Diviner also out. Russell Crowe's directing debut about an Australian man who travels to Turkey in search of his three missing sons. Missing sons, missing fathers. It sounds like a really heavy, sad week at the theater. I think I heard Paul Blart Mall Cop 2 took three years to film. So <laughs> that's that really so? impressive that James managed to squeeze that other movie in. Wow. Out here in Chicago in limited release, Welcome to New York. This is the Abel Ferrara film inspired by the Dominique Strauss-Kahn case with Gerard Depardieu. Ballet 422, or 422, a documentary about the staging of the New York City Ballet's 422nd Ballet. It's directed by Jody Lee Lipes, who has been mentioned a few times over the years here on the show as the cinematographer on After School and Tiny Furniture from Lena Dunham and Martha Marcy May Marlene. Matt Singer, our friend from Film Spotting SVU, gave it a four-star review on Letterboxd saying, I'm not a big ballet guy, but I love the way Jody Lee Leip shoots dancers. Next week on the show, we are going to share our sacred cow review of Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs. So get out your little green bag and your Steelers wheels and get ready for that. We'll also share our top five films of the year. Reservoir Dogs came out in 1992. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board, and special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect our community, our nation, and our world. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our music this week comes from Damian Gerardo. Find out more information about him at damiangerardo.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.
did it all come through or I was worried about, did you clear all that phlegm out of your, I was worried about breaking something, but I, I couldn't hold back. Oh my God. That was too good. I was too far in.